Well, we're currently working our way through Luke's account of the life of Jesus. And uh, as we've been seeing, uh, one of the really striking things about Luke's gospel is Luke focuses on Jesus' prayer life uh, more than any other book in the whole of the Bible. In fact, uh, of the nine prayers uh, of Jesus recorded in Luke, seven of them aren't found in any of the other Gospels. It's like Luke treats Jesus' prayer life as one of the centerpieces of how Jesus lived here on earth, which is why, really, over the last couple of months, we've been camping out in Luke chapter 11, where Jesus gives us just this brilliant model for our praying today. If you remember, it starts by focusing on God, honoring him, praising him for who he is. He's our father. His name is to be hallowed above all others. And then moves on to praying for God's agenda in the world. Your kingdom come. Then shows us how we're to really depend on God for absolutely everything. Give us each day our daily bread. And then it teaches us the crucial place of prayer in our battle against sin. A couple of weeks back, uh, Johnny focused in on forgive us our sins. This week, we get to the final line of the prayer. And lead us not into temptation. That's what we're going to be opening up this morning. Now, just to say at the very outset that this word temptation here it is actually quite a hard word to translate. It carries a sense of being tested or, or even being trapped. Uh, and I think it's hard to translate because a good test can also be a trap. Really, at the end of the day, it depends on you. I can still just about remember my school days. My least favorite teacher at secondary school was Mr. Green. Uh, He taught me physics, or at least tried to teach me physics. And I didn't like him one bit because he used to set us these tests with no warning whatsoever. Uh, And his argument was this. He'd say, we'd never master the material if we just crammed it all at the end. So he never told us when he was going to set us a test. He'd just randomly throw a test without any warning. He wanted us to keep on revising week on week so we'd be ready, so we'd be prepared whenever the test came. On the one hand, if you did that, if you kept revising, if you did keep up, then the tests were wonderful. That They gave an opportunity for you to show how well you were doing. But if, like me, you were letting it slide a bit, and were just attempting to bluff your way through, those tests were traps. You would get caught out. You see, a test shows what you really are, how you are really doing. And if you're in denial, if you're out of touch with reality, then a test can be devastating. Jesus knows that life is full of huge tests. And he says, really, the only way you're going to come through them is if you regularly go to God and ask for his help. We need to be praying, God, I know that in reality, I can't escape being tempted. My faith in you is going to keep on being tested. 
So please help me not to succumb. Give me the power I need to not go right into the mouth of temptation. Don't let it devour me, deliver me from it. Don't let the inevitable tests of life turn into traps for me. That's how we are to pray. Now in the midst of all of this, I think Jesus gives us four very practical pointers that will help us to come through the tests of life and not be trapped by them. And I want to touch on each of those four things before we're done. Here's the first one. Expect them. Expect them. Really, of all the things Jesus could have given us to pray about in this model prayer, so many ways he could have taught us to pray, so many things he could have got us to focus in on, I find it very interesting that he includes this line about temptation. Jesus is preparing us for the reality we can't escape it. Really, we shouldn't be surprised when we're tempted. shouldn't be shocked when we find ourselves going through a period of testing. It's unavoidable. And Jesus says we should recognize temptation for what it is. So we've been seeing it's a test that has the potential to draw out what's really in us. We should be alert to these tests. We should expect them, and we should be regularly praying about them. Now, I suggest there are big tests, and there are little tests. I think very often we're blind to this. Uh, We don't see the countless little tests that we face every single day for what they really are. We perhaps wonder why our boss is being difficult, why our kids keep waking up in the middle of the night, why our classmates keep turning on us. We see these things as kind of irritations. I think Jesus would say, no, look at them as tests. They are ways for you to respond with compassion, with forgiveness, with honesty, with generosity, with courage. See them for what they are. They're ways of demonstrating that God is at work in you. He's changing the way you would naturally react. He's changing the way you think, the way you treat others. Every day is crammed with these kinds of opportunities. And then there are bigger tests. It says in 1 Peter 4 verse 12, Do not be surprised. This is a command. Don't be surprised at the painful, or as some versions put it, the fiery trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. I think a lot of the time, a big part of why we struggle when we go through really tough circumstances is we do find it strange. We are surprised that it's happening to us. I mean, how could this be happening to me? Why on earth is God allowing me to go through this? I reckon a lot of the reason we're so down a lot of the time is our reaction to the problem as much as the problem itself. Let's say, for example, you help someone out financially, and that person takes you to the cleaners, completely rips you off. You're tempted to explode with anger. You're tempted to be consumed with bitterness. You're tempted to withdraw from people altogether. I'm not going to trust anyone anymore. 
see it for what it is. It's a fiery trial. It's testing you. It's bringing out what's really inside you. It's giving you an opportunity to come through on some things, to change, to show grace, to forgive just as you have been forgiven. It's a fiery trial that has the potential to refine you, to demonstrate how you are growing more and more in purity. But it can also be a trap that snaps shut on you and ends up bringing untold pain. Or to give you another example, let's imagine you have set your heart on a particular career um, and it requires you having certain qualifications or a certain level of athleticism. And completely out of the blue, you fail the crucial exams or you pick up a career-ending injury. You're amazed at how completely thrown you are you're taken aback, maybe even by the suicidal thoughts you're having. You struggle to find the motivation to do anything different. It's a fiery trial. If you come through it, you end up stronger, and God gets glory. But the same thing can also be a trap that you never fully break free from. It can end up casting a shadow over your whole life, wrecking your life. As Christians, we shouldn't be shocked, but most people are, and here's why. On one end of the spectrum, you have very moral, very religious people. Over here, I'm not making any comment about Russ or the people (laughs) over here, over here, you have very liberal people, oh, just do your own thing, free lifestyle. As different as they are, as different as they are, the one thing they're united on is they have a naive understanding on life. And it goes a bit like this. Good people who live good lives should have nice lives. And bad people who live bad lives, well, they should have difficult lives. That's the way it should be. And so they're amazed when they find that good people often face difficult circumstances, sometimes have bad lives. And bad people often have good lives. Now, as different as those people are, they're both completely bent out of shape when it comes to this. But as Christians, we shouldn't be shaken by this. In reality, we shouldn't be the least bit surprised. You see, as we look at the only person who was truly good who was perfectly good, who was infinitely good, Jesus Christ, we find him living a life of alienation and rejection, a victim of injustice and oppression, eventually dying the most horrific death imaginable. But in the hands of God, death leads to resurrection. Seeds that appear to die can grow up as mighty oaks. Carbon under pressure after thousands and thousands of years become diamonds or refined in the fire becomes precious gold Jesus says we're to follow him and that as we follow him we're not above our master we're not to expect anything different if Jesus was mistreated so will we be certainly not promised an easy ride 
It's the first thing I think we see here. We're to expect tests. Here's the second thing. When we're tested, the real enemy is evil. When we're tested, the real enemy is evil. A few years ago, we had something of a rodent infestation in our house, in our old house, not the one we're in now, in case you're worried about ever coming around to visit us. Now, for the sake of my family's well-being, I became the number one enemy of the rodent population in the whole of Birmingham. And my strategy was simple yet deadly. Basically, uh, I set out to scare the rodents into submission by trying to prove to them that I'm bigger and smarter and stronger than they will ever be. Now, some of you are smirking. Into the, it's true. Now, to say that I got well and truly tooled up would be something of an understatement. I'll tell you, I stayed up late into the night trying to figure out new strategies to lure the vermin to their death. And just to illustrate the matter, uh, I've brought some of the tools of destruction with me. Now, I left the spade and various other things at home, uh, that the shotgun is still at home as well. But um, I don't know if you ever use these. Uh, glue traps. Uh, the basic idea is you, you lay them around the place, uh, and the, uh, the, the rats wander along, find themselves stuck to them, and cannot escape. Now, uh, just in case you're wondering, these have limited success. Uh, We found that uh, some of the vermin ate their way uh, off the traps by eating uh, the the, the glue trap. Uh, Some actually uh, ate their legs off to escape, which, yeah, doesn't really bear thinking about. So, uh, (laughs) some effectiveness. Uh, The other ones that um, uh, are a little kind of simpler and cleaner are uh, these... These things, we ever use these, the the basic idea is that uh, the unsuspecting rat or mouse wanders in because they can smell something really quite attractive, they eat it and then die. Simple, basic, it can work. But uh, here is my real favourite, okay? Uh, It's called the nipper. Uh, In no way does this merely nip. Uh, You uh, load it up with cheese or something like that, uh, and then the unsuspecting creature wanders along, uh, eats it, and that's the last thing they ever do. Great device. My personal favourite. Cleaned it up just for uh, this morning. Now, the basic philosophy uh, behind all of these is pretty similar. The idea is that the creatures will go to them voluntarily, and then they'll choose to enter into or participate in the very things that will lead to their death. Now, why will they do that? Well, their enemy is smart enough to know that you can't just say to the rat, choose death, and have it choose death. So, all of these things involve deception. They involve the promise of life. Uh, A rodent looks at them and thinks that they're desirable to the eye or good for food. But unbeknown to them, they actually lead to their destruction. Now, without wishing to get too surreal, uh, I want to try and get inside the head of a rat for a second. Uh, I, I want you to try and think like a rat for just a moment. Because you think that after a while, rats would rise, uh, would wise up, not rise up, wise up. <laughs> we don't want that. Uh, you think they'd observe that uh, their numbers uh, are diminishing around my house. 
You'd think they'd learn from the mistakes of the impulsive rats who've gone before them. You'd think that some thoughtful, discerning rat would say, whoa, wait a moment. I mean, I'm not just going to blindly follow my desires. I've noticed all of my friends get drawn into this, but strangely, they never seem to come back again. Uh, I'm going to consider just how high a price I'm willing to pay for the experience of a bit of tasty-looking food. But no rat ever does that. Without wishing to get even more surreal, I'm kind of guessing, they say to themselves, actually, I know what I'm doing here. I'm strong enough, and I'm smart enough, and I'm clever enough to handle this attraction without ever getting caught. I'm not going to pause for reflection, I'm going to take the bait. And only an animal would be that stupid, right? All around us, people are falling into very similar traps. Fabulously famous and wealthy celebrities snap. High-profile footballers, snap. Politicians, snap. Not really helping with the levels here, but Russ can sort that out later. Uh, Leaders of churches, snap. Members of our family, perhaps, our friends, people we care about, love, snap. I mean, what's going on? I I mean, you've got to wonder, haven't you? Every time you hear about another person who falls into temptation that just destroys their life, you wonder, why does it happen? Why does it keep happening? Why do we voluntarily give in to what we know is going to be destructive? Why do we fall for it again and again and again? Why do intelligent people engage in stupid actions that we know we're going to be ashamed of? Well, the Bible says that at least part of the answer is that you have an enemy and so do I. And he is bigger and stronger and smarter than we are. Paul writes in Ephesians 6, we battle not against flesh and blood. Right now you are engaged in a battle and it's not merely against flesh and blood. It's against powers and principalities, Paul says, against spiritual forces of evil. Therefore, as a result of this, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now, the fundamental identity of this enemy of ours, this evil one, the devil, is tempter. Very simply, his fundamental strategy is temptation. Because if he can trap us into sinning, he knows he will destroy our lives. I suggest that's why in Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer. And in the footnotes here in Luke 11, we see Jesus telling us to pray, deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us from the evil one. If all Jesus says for us to pray is, lead us not into temptation, you could get the impression that he's simply saying, get me out of here. Don't ever let me be tested. Please get rid of all of these circumstances. Never let me be in trouble. However, the second half qualifies what he's saying. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In other words, we're to pray, deliver me from what the evil one would have me do. Deliver me from being trapped by sin. 
Help me to see sin for what it is. Help me not to be deceived by its attractive appearance. Help me to make wise decisions that keep me safe from the evil one's destructive plan for me. That's what it means to escape temptation. That's what it means to pass the test. Now I know that this can be really hard to get when you're right there in the midst of it. But ultimately, your enemy isn't your circumstance. It's not your unhappiness. It's not the suffering. It's not the pain. If you fall into the trap of thinking of these things as the real enemy, you're inadvertently opening yourself up to bitterness and hurt and resentment and cynicism and anger and self-pity and it's a trap these are things that have the potential to destroy you your real problem is sin it's evil and it will wreck your life got to see that or you'll never grow through tests it's like 10 tons of suffering can't ultimately hurt you but one ounce of sin can absolutely ruin you if you come through a time of testing with honesty with compassion with unselfishness with faithfulness you come through closer to God then although it's been tough it's produced something of colossal worth However, if you respond to your circumstances with impatience, faithlessness, bitterness, selfishness, it will potentially ruin you. When we're tested, the real enemy is evil. Here's the third thing. We must process all of our tests, view them all through the lens of the love of the Father. We must process our tests through the love of the Father. Jesus could have used any number of names to describe God. But he starts this prayer, Father. And really this modifies everything else in the prayer. Think about it. Jesus could have told us to pray, Mighty God! powerful king, sovereign lord, do something about my trouble. But he chooses instead to start by reminding us that we're adopted children of God. He's our father. Jesus is saying, before you look at the temptation, before you focus in on the tests, before you become consumed with the troubles of the circumstances you're facing, I want you to focus on God as your father. Now this is important because most people I know when troubles come to them they react in one of three ways. One way is people get angry despair. (laughs) They say I've worked really hard and I don't deserve this. Why on earth is this happening to me? This isn't fair. That There is no justice. Angry despair. 
other approach is to get into guilty despair and they say if this is happening then I must be terrible I, I must be a complete and utter failure there must be something wrong with me I, I, I wouldn't be suffering unless I was a bad person guilty despair some get angry despair I don't deserve this some get guilty despair I do deserve this there are others who react by hardening themselves and they say life absolutely stinks I just don't care anymore I give up I suggest that when suffering comes and it will when tests come and they shall you can choose from those three options or you can live out what it means to be a Christian you can choose from those three or you can know that you're a child of God listen Christians aren't people who've been trying to earn their salvation a Christian is someone who knows they've been adopted by the father because of what Jesus Christ did for them A Christian is someone who says, legally, I have been brought into the family of God by sheer grace, not by my merits, not by my worth, not by my works. And now the Father loves me as much as he loves his own precious son, Jesus. Now, when you begin to process your tests like that, here's what happens. First of all, you look at the troubles in your life and you say, To be fair, on reflection, I do probably deserve this. I mean, if you know that you're a sinner saved by grace, it completely diffuses the anger despair. But a Christian also turns over here and says, however, my Father in heaven loves me as much as his own natural son. And when the Father looks at me, as he looks at my life, he sees Jesus. So, God can't be punishing me for my sin. In fact, if God was punishing me for all my sins, I'd be dead right now. I would have been completely wiped out a long time ago. You see, on the one hand, we know we deserve it. That deals with the anger, despair. On the other hand, we know it can't be punishment. Jesus bore our punishment. That gets rid of the guilt, the condemnation also gets rid of the indifference, the hard-heartedness, because you know that God's your father and he hates your grief. And so there must be a good reason for it. It's like the father let his own natural son go through some incredibly dark paths in order to redeem, rescue us. So I guess there must be some good that can come from this. And as you're a good father... I know you won't allow one moment more than it needs to be. Just let me keep on obeying you. Help me keep trusting you, even when I don't understand. Let the test work good in me. Do you see? Four people face exactly the same test, the same circumstance. One person gets angry, one gets guilty, one gives up, and one responds with hope joy even it's not the circumstance it's how you process it it's how you view it will you go to your father 
Will you keep hold of his lavish love for you as you're tested? Will you treat him? Will you trust him as your father? If you do, that will deliver you from evil. It will strengthen you. It will encourage you. It will refine you. And although I'm not saying it will be incredibly tough, it will be incredibly tough. Despite the pain, it will still produce something good. One last thing, then we're done. Number four. Watch Jesus dealing with temptation. For you. Watch Jesus dealing with temptation for you. Ultimately, if you really want to know how to handle tests, you you need to see beyond the instruction to pray, lead us not into temptation, to the person who gives the instruction. Jesus was speaking from personal experience. If you remember, straight after the Father affirming Jesus' sonship at his baptism, he allowed the Spirit to lead his dearly beloved Son, Jesus, into the wilderness for a prolonged period of testing. That's what fathers do. And you might think it sounds incredibly harsh, but if you really love your child, if you deeply care for them, then you'll train them. The Father allowed Jesus to go through a time of testing in the wilderness in preparation for the ultimate test, the ultimate test in the Garden of Gethsemane shortly before his arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion. And Jesus came through it all for you when faced with the temptation not going through with the cross. Remember how Jesus prayed? Father, please take this cup from me, but not my will. Your will be done. Take this cup from me. But the most important thing is I want to do your will. If you see Jesus saying that for you, then it will help you say that for him. And if you see him going through the greatest test of all for you, then you can be sure that he will walk with you through the tests you face. In the midst of all of this, we really mustn't lose sight of Jesus. So to summarize what we've seen, if you want to come through the tests of life and not be trapped by them, first of all, expect them. Second, see the real enemy is not your circumstance but evil. Third, process your tests through the Father's love. And then fourth, what's Jesus dealing with temptation for you? Now I know that even in a room this size with this many people, every single one of us wrestles with temptation. In fact, I'm pretty sure that some of you will be wrestling with it big time even now. I want you to remember something. I want you to remember those traps that I showed you at the beginning. I want you to remember the next time you face temptation. I want you to remember the damage that it can do to your life. Don't ever forget the reality 
The temptation can cause you to violate, to absolutely trash your integrity, destroy a marriage, rip apart a family, create guilt and despair and shame, interrupt the possibility of worship for you, cause you to hide, retreat from other people, lead you into hypocrisy and deception. Whichever way you look at it, whichever way you cut it, it's just bad. Yet despite this, some of you are probably toying with it right now. It's like you're eyeing it up. You're going for the bait. I'm urging you, don't do it. Please, don't do it. We're told in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12 that God won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. He will make a way out. I'm pleading with you right now. Please take it. There is a way out. Take it. I don't know. Maybe you've been battling temptation for a long time. Maybe you're just discouraged. You're you're exhausted. Maybe the truth is that the battle isn't going at all well at the moment. Maybe you haven't even been making much of an effort of late. Maybe you're wondering right now, is there enough grace for me? Could I ever be forgiven for that? Is there any hope in my situation? Will things, can things ever get any better? You need to realize there really is a battle going on. You genuinely do have an enemy, but God really will help. We have an enemy, and he is strong, but there is one who is stronger still, and he has won the battle. Whatever your struggle, whatever your temptation, whatever your trial, you needn't face it alone. So when you make this your constant prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I want to invite you to stand and we're going to pray.